We begin the second chapter. Ten years ago today, we were stunned as we watched the space shuttle Challenger go throttles up and explode right on live television. And our minds immediately asked the question, how did this happen? Why did this happen? Now we have learned that there were two engineers at the corporation responsible for making the rockets that did everything possible the night before to delay the launch. They predicted exactly what happened. But unfortunately, their pleas went unheeded, resulting in disaster. I draw a certain corollary from that tragedy to what Paul writes to the Colossians in the text before us. The church at Colossae had been successfully launched. Everything seemed go. But the apostles saw a menacing danger, a threat to the church's well-being. And so he writes in these words to warn them that their belief system, their theological integrity, was being subtly attacked by a heresy that would cause them to disintegrate as a faithful and flourishing body of believers. Paul was concerned. I think we can say Paul was worried for the well-being of the church at Colossae. He does not describe for us in this book, in some systematic fashion, exactly what the heresy was. But we infer from what Paul does say that the danger there involved a cult-like teaching that exalted human thinking and human knowledge and human ideas above the divine revelation as final authority. They were not satisfied with what God had said to them. Those in this false teaching were looking for some superior knowledge. And part of their cult involved man-made rules and regulations, including asceticism or self-abasement and self-denial, as part of the requirements for being righteous and for being able to please God. It seems also that this cult sought some sort of mystical experience with angels or spiritual beings, even worshiping them. And they said that in order to communicate with God, in order to commune with God, you had to go through these ranks of angels or these emanations from God, and their idea was that Jesus Christ was the fir on the first rank of these angels. Now, if you've listened to what I've said, you can understand why Paul was worried, because this cult degraded Jesus Christ. The revelation from God that came in Christ, according to the cult, was insufficient. They sought some reasoning from man's mind or some gaining of knowledge above Christ. Christ's sacrifice on the cross and the righteousness that he gives to believers as a free gift through justification by faith was not enough. 
It was important to keep rules and regulations and to abase oneself. Jesus Christ to them was but a created being, one of these angels or emanations descending from God to man. God was pure spirit, and therefore, in order to communicate with pure spirit, one had to go through these levels of angels to finally commune with God. And Jesus Christ was but one of them, a superior one to be sure, but one of the created angels. And so they degraded Jesus Christ in his person and in his work. Paul's intent in writing this book is to correct this Christ-denying heresy before the church's ministry and its fellowship exploded into futility. And so as he writes, he is reminding these believers of true doctrine so that they will adhere or continue on in it. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. Please follow along in your Bible. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf, and for those who are at Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face. Paul is writing to some people he had never met. He did not personally found the church in Colossae, probably a team from the church in Ephesus that Paul did found, went to the city of Colossae and witnessed and founded a church. There was also a church in Laodicea, which was nearby, and in the city of Hierapolis, which was only about 10 or 11 miles away. Laodicea, Hierapolis, and Colossae were sort of a tri-cities area in Asia Minor. And the work of Jesus Christ was going on there, but Paul had never been there personally. He writes to them now. He writes that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And I say this in order that no one may delude you, that is, may cheat you, may deceive you with persuasive arguments. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with thanksgiving or gratitude. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Now Paul weaves into this text some of the very language of the cultists, Wisdom, knowledge, elementary principles of the world. These were some of the words and phrases that they themselves use. Now Paul takes these phrases and fights back at them with them. 
What he tells us in these verses is that Jesus Christ is supreme over all human ideas. Human reason is a wonderful gift, but a woeful God. We live in a day when human reason has been exalted as God. In the period of the Enlightenment, which was a reaction to the Reformation, reason was exalted above revelation. That heresy, that human reason can be exalted above the revelation of God in the Bible and in Jesus Christ, has grown fruit that is poisoning our culture 300 years later at the end of the 20th century. Out of this heresy of exalting human reason above the Bible have come humanism, which says man himself is the measure of all things, not the Bible, not God's revelation. Man is the center of all and the measure of all. Along with humanism has come secularism, a denial of the supernatural, a denial that there is a God in heaven who intervenes in the affairs of men. Along with humanism and secularism has come relativism, which says there are no absolutes. Everything is relative. It depends. No one can say. Who are you to say that that's right or that's wrong? All of these are but the fruits of the heresy that has plagued the Western civilization for the last 300 years. Now let me be clear that God designed man to think. And Christians above all people should value the intellectual capability of man. Ravi Zacharias is one of my favorite preachers and writers. He is an intellectual, which puts him on a little different level than me, but I try to keep up with him. And he has a radio broadcast that he has cleverly entitled, Let My People Think. God designed us to think. But when man forgets God, when he exalts his own ability to reason above what God has said in his word, <clears throat> his ability to reason will quickly lead him to error and to delusion. My friend, that's what Romans chapter 1 is all about. When they willfully turn away from the knowledge of the Creator and exalt themselves above God, they're turned to foolishness and moral degradation. And that is exactly where we are at the end of this century. 
along with the other false isms that I've mentioned from the exaltation of human reason. There is another heresy that is taught in our schools, that is assumed in our cultural values, that is dominant in science as well as in liberal theology, and that is the heresy of evolutionism. Evolution has become the religion of our day. It has permeated all of our society until we live in a time when if you dare question it, you are immediately denounced and ridiculed. Witness some of the conversation that took place when a person who's a member of our church talked about the possibility of, of talking about creationism in the public school classrooms in one of our school districts. And the kind of response and reaction from some in our community about that. I'm telling you, evolution is the modern theology of America. It is foolishness. In our recent trip to California, it was a real privilege for us to visit the Institute for Creation Research in uh, El Cajon. They have their marvelous museum, and if you ever get out to San Diego area, I encourage you to go to the Institute for Creation Research Museum. Uh, in this museum, they, they show the first 11 chapters of Genesis from a scientific viewpoint and argue for its truthfulness against the false teaching, the false idea of evolutionism in our day. It's a great place. It'll be helpful to you as well as to your children. And the church today, the church of Jesus Christ is as vulnerable to heresy as was the first century church in Colossae. The thinking of our culture denigrates the supreme place of Jesus Christ and the unique revelation of God in him. And that can subtly filter into the church. I think that there is cause for alarm today as much as there was in Paul's heart when he wrote to the Colossians. God's revelation in his Son and in his Word take precedence over. They become the, the judge and the standard for all human thinking. Isaiah 8.20 says, To the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because they're is no light in them. My friend, God's revelation in Jesus Christ is supreme over all human thinking. And human thinking that does not put Him first and put God's revelation supreme is human thinking that is damned and doomed to delusion and judgment. Paul gives a warning about that in verse 8. 
And he writes to us, as well as to the Colossians. And he says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. His first warning is that a Christian can be abducted and carried away from the truth and enslaved to error. A Christian is no less vulnerable or susceptible to lies than the non-Christian if he doesn't listen to the Holy Spirit and arm his mind with the truth of God. A Christian is just as susceptible. You look at the contemporary movements that have captured so many who profess Christ. The prosperity gospel with its heretical ideas regarding materialism. Some of the extremes of the charismatic movement. This holy laughter that we hear about, I'm convinced, is from the pit. It is not from God. It is but another excess of those who are seeking to base their faith on experience rather than upon the revelation of God. And when you do that, you have to keep finding some new experience because experience wears out after a while. It gets old. A few days ago, I heard about the most recent sign now that you're filled with the Holy Spirit. It's gone from holy laughter. Now get a hold of yourself. It's gone from holy laughter to projectile vomiting. Now, I heard about this 10 years ago when we visited in Indonesia. But now it's come to the United States. How would you like to be the janitor crew in that church? <laughs> and then the New Age kind of thinking that creeps in. And there are many churches today, quote unquote, who have forsaken the revelation of God for a heresy that is very close in, in some respects to what was taking place in Colossae. In the worship of angels, channeling angels, finding the God within you, etc. ad nauseum. Listen, a Christian can be abducted. That's why Paul says, see to it that no one kidnaps you. If you're going to keep from being kidnapped, you have to guard yourself. And that's what Paul wants us to do. There's a second warning. He says false teachers use human thinking that is devoid of God. It's hollow. It's powerless. These deceive. These align, he says, with what one generation passes on to another. He speaks about philosophy and empty deception according to the traditions of men. 
For 300 years we've had this idea that human reason is superior to what God has said in the Bible. It's been passed down from one generation to another and it has proven itself empty and hollow. It has proven itself damning to cultures and yet it is being touted and praised. Too often when we think about false teaching in the Bible, we think about some tele-evangelists. Or we think about the cult that that uh, is a classical sort of a cult. I want you to know that false teachers refers to anyone who knowingly or unknowingly passes on information to others that is false and leads them away from the truth of God. Anyone. And I'm including educators, philosophers, cosmologists. That's not cosmetologists, that's cosmologists. Psychologists, religious scholars and, and uh, teachers, the media, entertainment stars, writers, columnists, anyone who knowingly or unknowingly passes on lies to others that leads them away from God as a false teacher as far as the Bible is concerned. Sometimes we think in order for it to be false, it's got to be rank with lies. In fact, the most dangerous false teaching is the one that is only slightly less than the truth, or which incorporates some of the truth along with the false. The third thing Paul says in his warning to believers is, it, is this, that the ultimate source of error is what he terms the elementary principles of the world. It's not Christ. What does he mean by this rather uh, difficult statement, the elementary principles of the world? Literally, it means the basic components of things. As you would think of uh, language or of words, the basic components would be the letters, the ABCs. He's breaking things down to the, the most simple element. I think that there's a very strong argument, it's at least one that I accept, that what Paul is referring to here is that are those cosmic spirits, those demonic forces that are behind all lies and false teaching. Where did this idea of Descartes and Locke and others arise? that says that human reason is to be exalted above the Bible. Ultimately, says Paul, it comes from demons whose purpose it is to lead people away from the truth of God. That's the ultimate source of false teaching. Hence Paul's warning to you and to me, don't be captured by false teaching. How then do we defend ourselves? Well, Paul gives us not only a warning, but he gives us a reminder that we have a defense system against false human thinking. We must learn to use it. 
I think he begins underscoring our defense system in verse 1 when he tells about his own experience. He says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf. The word Paul uses here is the word agon. And if you listen to that, you can hear our word agony. He is talking about pain in the soul. It is a word from the arena. It refers to a wrestling match that requires the, the, the best that one has in all of his strength to the point of agony. I want you to know how great a wrestling I have on your behalf and for all of those who've not seen me. Paul is talking here about his prayer life. And so the defense of false teaching for us is first prayer. Prayer. There are different kinds of prayer, of course. There's worship, there's thanksgiving, there's confession, but there is also intercession and warfare praying. That's what Paul is talking about here. Now, no praying is easy, but the hardest kind of praying is warfare praying, in which you are praying for others and for yourself to be delivered from demonic forces and the lies and the tricks and the snares that are placed out there to trip us up and to take us captive. Prayer is like wrestling. We're not so much wrestling with God as we are wrestling with the enemy in our prayer life. We need to pray for those whose thinking is being undermined by false human reasoning that doesn't put God in his right place. And I know I share a burden with all of you who have children who are in school on any level, including college. We need to pray for our kids. We need to pray for the youth in our student ministry. That God will help them to think correctly. That God will guard their minds. And we parents need to exemplify that. That we're thinking rightly that Christ is above all. We need to pray for one another. Pray for ourselves. Second line of defense is found in verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged. Their hearts may be admonished or exhorted, having been knit together in love. Paul seems to be saying here that the second line of defense is association, being knit together with others. He is praying, he says, that the believers that he's not seen may become united together, may be associated together. That their hearts may be welded together in love. Sometimes truth divides, but love unites. And he prays that we as believers may not isolate ourselves, may not pull back, but may be knit together. There is such a line of thinking in the church today. In fact, I was talking with um, 
someone about it this last week. The migration of people from church to church. You know, they disagree with something at this church, and so they migrate to this church. And they're there for a year or two or ten, and they disagree with something, and then they migrate to this church. My friend, that is not of God. God wants us to be welded together in love. And love covers a multitude of sins. When there's a difference, love looks over that. The weld is there. And Paul says there is strength, there is defense against false teaching in associating with other believers. Of course, there's a great benefit that we watch out for one another as we're associated in the church. And then there's a third line of defense. Verse 2, he goes on to say, Attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery. And God's mystery, he says, is Christ. He says that there are riches that we ought to enjoy. Riches of understanding. And, and that's what I believe is the defense. It's understanding. It's gaining understanding that comes through Jesus Christ and through the Word of God. That's our defense against false teaching. All knowledge and wisdom relates to the person of Jesus Christ. He is the source of it all. And he says that we need to become rich in our firm conviction, our full assurance of understanding <clears throat> regarding the true knowledge, the rich spiritual insights that are in Jesus Christ in whom are hidden, in whom are stored away all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Remember, these are the words the cultists are using. They're saying, you, you need to have some knowledge. You need to gain this knowledge, and here's how you do it. Paul says, look, Jesus Christ is the storehouse of all wisdom and knowledge. You don't need more than him. When it says that Jesus Christ is the storehouse, it doesn't mean that he is hiding them in himself. <clears throat> it means that they are deposited in him for all to receive and to enjoy. <clears throat> to grasp how Christ is the creator, how that he called into existence all things, and by him everything holds together, to grasp that is to have a rich source of knowledge. So that when you begin to read about how science is discovering this and that, you can put it into place. If you don't have the knowledge, the rich insight that Jesus Christ is the creator, you can fall for the lies of evolution. You can fall for the assumptions that are based upon untruths that most people in our society just accept.
And these rich spiritual insights that we gain in Jesus Christ then become the measuring stick for everything else that we think and we hear. Now, if this sort of thing intrigues you, if you have a desire to investigate more about how the Christian worldview, the Christian mindset is different from the humanists and the evolutionists and certainly the Marxists mindset. I want to commend to you a book by David Noble called Understanding the Times. You may need to save a couple of weeks to buy it. It's a thick book. And it's not the sort of book that most of us will sit down and read through before we go to bed. It's rich with content. It's a wonderful resource, though, showing you how the, the, the Christian mind approaches everything from biology to ethics to theology and politics. Understanding the Times by David Noble of Summit Ministries. Paul says if you want to be on guard against false teaching, then you must gain understanding that comes through Jesus Christ, who is the source of all wisdom and knowledge. A fourth line of defense is found in verses 5, 6, and 7. He says, I rejoice to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. And Paul, as a, a wise leader, is writing to commend them as he warns them. And so he commends them for their good discipline and for their stability. Both of these are military terms, suggesting to us that Paul sees this whole issue as a warfare for the mind. He says your good discipline, that means your order, that you're, you're keeping rank, and for your stability of faith, the word stability means a solid front, firmness, a solid front, a phalanx of soldiers that give no ground. He says, as you therefore have received Christ, walk in him. And so it seems to me that the fourth line of defense is continuance. He says, you've received Christ, now go on and grow on. Don't allow yourself to become stagnant. Be disciplined like a soldier. Walk in him. The result of that will be that you will be built up and established in your faith. To walk means to conduct yourself, to live out your life in relationship with the Lord. Walk in him. If you and I are going to protect ourselves from being taken captive by false thinking in our culture, it must involve our walking in Christ as a continual habitual experience day after day. We have been rooted in him, now let's be built up and established in our faith. The word faith here means our belief system. It means our understanding of theology. Be built up in that, just as you were instructed. And he says, do this with an overflowing gratitude. Well, if Paul were to write the church today, I wonder how he would view the state of health in the church. Would he see any impending dangers 
and tragedies? Would he see any false human thinking that, have, that has taken captive God's people? Well, I think the answer is yes, he would. To be honest with you, some of the attitudes found among God's people today amaze me. They amaze me. I recently read a statement in which someone extrapolated, if the decline of giving in the church continues at its present course, unabated, the last church will shut its door in the year 2048. It'll be all over. Because of the way that we think about money and giving. That's just one example. How do we think about sports? This is something to talk about on Super Bowl Sunday. What place do we give to that? How do we think about it? How do we think about what we see coming down from that marvelous instrument floating around the earth, a Hubble telescope? I've gotten into the internet and seen some of the pictures, and some of you have too. That most recent picture on the front page of the paper was absolutely spectacular. Reaching far, far out into space, close to the, quote, edge of the universe. How do we think about that? Does that come from a big bang, which assumes that matter is eternal? Not that God created it, but that matter is eternal. Is that how we interpret what we see? Or do we understand that that is one of the productions of Jesus Christ the Creator and His intelligence? What would Jesus Christ, through the Apostle Paul, write to you regarding the way you think? The attitudes that you harbor... What would he say has influenced your thinking? Has it been the Word of God and the revelation of Jesus Christ, or is it human reasoning? What is it that's persuaded you to leave your walk with Christ and to go in another direction? We need to take strong remedial action in our lives about the sources of false thinking that easily influences. We need to commit ourselves to the defense system that's suggested in this text. We need to devote at least some of our praying to the hard work of wrestling against false ideas. We need to commit some of our praying to interceding for the saints, for the young as well as the old. Then we need to take the step of associating with God's people in a local church, fellowship, where the Bible is taught, where Jesus Christ is honored. Some of you have been hanging on the fringe of, of church commitment and membership. The Apostle Paul prays for you that you might be knit together, be welded together in a local church family. We need to study the Word of God to discover the rich spiritual insights that are in Jesus Christ and to establish those as the measure for everything that we hear and agree to and live for. 
And we need to conduct our lives intentionally every day with Jesus Christ as the Lord. And if we will do that, then we will be protected against kidnap. We'll not be abducted by the false thinking of our age. May God search our hearts and try our minds and find within us anything that is false and show that to us so that we can have our minds renewed and not only believe but live out that Jesus Christ is supreme over human reasoning and thinking. Let's pray. Father, I ask that the Holy Spirit would do his work of convicting us where our minds have been deceived and we've accepted false thinking. And I pray that we will all put up the defense system that you've provided for us. God, I pray that none of us will allow ourselves anymore to be taken captive by philosophy and empty deception. The work of demonic spirits seeking to lead us away from you. But may our thinking be disciplined. May it be subjected to your revelation in Jesus Christ. And I pray that we will be a people unashamed to live out that truth in the world. And that we will stand for what is true and what is right despite the dominant religion of our day. May we be the people of God, exalting Jesus Christ as supreme at the end of the 20th century. In his name I pray. Amen.